0: And on point for us in our text in Romans 7 this morning is this. I'm going to read you an account from Confessions from Augustine where he confesses his actions and thoughts regarding a pear tree. And some of you may know this account. Very insightful. Just listen to Augustine record his confession. I quote, There was a pear tree close to our own vineyard, heavily laden with fruit, which was not tempting, either for its color or its flavor. Note that, no temptation, the tree itself. Late one night, having prolonged our games in the streets until then, as was our bad habit, which was for a group of young scoundrels and I among them, we went to shake and rob this tree. We carried off a huge load of pears, not to eat ourselves, but to dump out to the pigs. After barely testing some of them ourselves, tasting them, doing this pleased us all the more. Listen to Augustine. It pleased us all the more. Why? Because it was forbidden. Such was my heart, he goes on to confess. Oh God, such was my heart which you did pity even in that bottomless pit. Behold, now let my heart confess to you what it was seeking there when I was being gratuitously wanton, having no inducement to evil, but only inclined to the evil itself. And then listen to him. It was foul, Augustine says, and I loved it. I loved my own undoing. I loved my error. Listen, not that for which I erred, but the error itself. A depraved soul falling away from security in you to destruction in itself, seeking nothing from the shameful deed, but shame itself, end quote. You know, a number of things are very striking about Augustine's account, aren't they? Let's just go over them for a moment. Number one, when you hear Augustine, you realize this had nothing to do with the pears. Did you catch that? This has nothing to do with the pears. Nothing to do with the properties of those pears or those specific pears. Nothing about Augustine and his peers being very hungry for pears. It had absolutely nothing to do with pears. Two, This had, says Augustine, to do with the fact that the pears were forbidden. You see that? It's because they were forbidden. One imagines you can insert anything in place of the pear. Three, this act was fueled by the fact that they were unlawful and noted, and for that reason, Augustine loved it. You see that? Consider with me then, and we can do this, if the pears were not unlawful... If there was a sign in the yard that said, come, take, eat freely. If there was no law against the pears, then we would understand that Augustine would not be aroused to sin, right? Based on his own words. So you might ask, is the problem here, I think I see the problem, is the problem here defining what is forbidden, is the problem law? I see what Augustine's saying, the problem is law. Some would say, as they hear that account and even think today, absolutely that's the problem. Right up to this very day, how many people would say, you know what the problem is with mankind? It's law. Too much of it, or we shouldn't have any of it. That's the problem, law. That's the question before us, Westmount, as we begin this morning. And maybe... It is a question you've been asking in this passage in Romans since the end of chapter 5. You remember verses like this. Maybe it provoked the question. Romans 5.20 said, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Maybe that question lingered into chapter 6 with verses like this. Chapter 6 verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law But under grace. And it is maybe the lingering question that returns to us in Romans 7 as we consider law in this chapter. Yes, it is the question that would also be aroused after the opening. Remember in chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, which we looked at last time. And again, especially with where we left off last week. Recall verses 5 and 6. Let's look at them. It says this, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which has held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. It would seem... The problem is clear there. Paul says, look at verse 5, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. Look at verse 6, he says, now we're released from the law, that thing that would have brought arousal in verse 5, and now we've died to it. In the Westmount, the law, maybe you're thinking, as we've been tracking through these chapters and passages, maybe you're thinking the law sure can sound harmful, can't it? At this point, you're thinking, That must be what he is saying. Well, Paul understands that, beloved. This is living word. Look at what's in front of you. This is a living word. As such, a word that understands the human condition. such, Paul continues. Let's follow. Let's just pick it up in verse 7 with those questions in our mind. What then shall we say, in light of all that we've just read, that the law is sin? There it is. By no means... The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let's pray. Our Lord, indeed, as we have sung and now ask that you would speak to us through this word, this living word shape and fashion us with it, Lord, as we turn to it now and look to walk out in light of it, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Is the law sin? No. Look at verse 12, very clear. In fact, verse 12 cannot refute that notion any stronger. As you look at verse 12, it says this plainly, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. In this passage, beloved, we'll see a defense of law. Verse 12 is the really the culmination of what Paul is going to do here in his defense of law. He's defending the law. And how staunch is this defense? Well, beloved, if you haven't caught it already, it was true in the first six verses of Romans 7, and it's especially true now in verses 7 to 12. Law is mentioned in every verse. And if it's not law, it's a synonym for law, commandment, you see it Every verse, multiple times, the law is in view, lest there be any doubt what Paul is talking about. As such, in these verses, we will examine a defense of the law with respect to sin and life. That's it simply here. So let's now begin with our first point, and it's this, the law and sin. The law and sin. Let's look at uh, verse 7 again. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You see that expression, and I pray at this point in Romans, it's very familiar to you. By no means. That strong negation, the strongest possible negation Paul is employing, for an idea that he recognizes is building in his hearer's minds. And it's one, look at six, chapter 6, verse 15. He did the same thing after the comment on not being under law, but under grace for the Christian. Verse 15, look, what then are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace by no means. And what I want us to see here, both in 6.15 as well as in 7.7, is this. Paul is defending both grace and law. Let's not miss this. Beloved, this is very helpful as we begin. There, in 6.15, Paul defended grace. Do you see that? And the charge to grace that sin was okay because of grace. Well, here in 7.7, Paul defends law and the charge that the law is sin. So look at this, beloved, as we just look at the whole context of these chapters, this passage. There is no one over the other. What you don't have with Paul is saying, you know, I'm a grace guy or I'm a law guy. There's no one over the other. For Paul and God's word, listen, it is grace and law, both. Christian then, the obvious application, so it must be for us too, There is no, I fall off this side of the horse, and that's just the kind of Christian I am. As our opening lesson, then, let us not see grace and law set against each other, because the Bible doesn't speak of them that way. Paul proceeds to give one positive purpose of the law. Did you catch it? A positive purpose to show its goodness. Look at verse 7. He says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Do you see that? That's knowledge of sin. Let's talk about this. In defense of law, knowledge of sin is a very good thing. Is it not? We need that, do we not? On our road where we live, they just installed speed limit signs. They just posted them there. And before, we might have asked as we were driving down, won't tell you which Belgrade, but some of us might say, well, how fast is this? There's no speed limit signs posted there. And listen, we might have had a general sense, and I think we all did, the vehicle, maybe, whoever's driving, is going a little too fast on that road. But it was ambiguous, right? We didn't know, so we drove on. We had, a, again, a very general sense, we could say, an internal sense that there's speed, but the act was undefined. Then the signs went up. Now, I think as you track with me, there's no question what the law is. Through the now posted law on our road comes, listen, a very clear knowledge to the driver in our car what the law is and what the speed limit is. Today, if an officer was to pull me over, I cannot say, Officer, I didn't know the limit. I can't say that, can I? Now listen, here's the point. We recognize that benefit of law generally, right? Those speed signs, far from causing frustration for those that like speed, they're given as a help to tell us what the law is. And that's true of law. Listen, through law, we know what is wrong, right? Through law. Through law. And here, though, Paul, again, does not just have a general or a moral law in view. We've tracked with this. Let's not lose it. back to verse 7, he continues, mid-verse, For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. If there was ever any doubt, he's referencing the Mosaic law. There it is right there, referencing the Tenth Commandment. This, again, points, Paul is pointing us to the law given in a time and place, the Mosaic law, That's the law in view here. And last time we acknowledged that and went through that. For the first century Christian, remember, that was the law. That snapshot given to Moses, 15th century BC, that was the law in view. Then and here in this text. It was the law for both Jew and Gentiles. Listen, there was no Gentile version of the law. The law as such became the standard for all those with faith in Yahweh, faith in Messiah, faith in seed. Right up to and including the time of Christ's advent, still the law was this law in the first century. To be clear, listen, given to Israel first and foremost on Mount Sinai, as Exodus records. That law by way of Moses given to the nation to define relationship with Yahweh. We covered that in our study in Exodus. that law came down to Israel and it brought, remember, knowledge of sin Like a freshly posted speed limit sign, the law through Moses came and provided clear articulation and knowledge of sin. And it was indeed specific. Listen, the law made sin known. So, as Paul writes to Roman Christians here, they all understood that law. They all understood it. And what was true of all those with faith in Yahweh was that law defined sin. They got that. Through the law, the first century Christian would understand, through the law came knowledge of sin. And here we would say, beloved, in defense of law this morning, we recognize that is good. Now, church, the law did not just usher in a knowledge of sin. Look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, at first read, look at verse 8. You may take away the sense that Paul has ceased his law defense. You may think, well, that was a one-verse defense of the law. And now look what he's doing. He's turning on the law. And this is where sometimes we need to slow down and bear in mind what we're reading. Is that really what Paul is doing? Is he turned on the law all of a sudden? No, we look carefully at what the word says. We remember... The charge against the law. What is the charge? That it itself is sin. Verse 7, right? That that was the charge. Here, Paul turns here to correct that error. He's not turning on the sin. He's turning on the charge, and he points us to sin's operation with respect to the law. That's the key. He doesn't all of a sudden leave his defense in verse 7 and say, you know what, I'll grant you that, and yes, let's just go at the law. It's bad. No, 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 no. We're track with him. Paul says, in essence, listen, the law is not sin, but here it is, but sin does work through the law. See that? The law itself is not sin, but sin does work through the law. What does that mean? Well, let's first consider a parallel. Are knives bad instruments? Are they bad things? Are knives bad things? Of course they're not. In fact, they're actually good instruments designed to help us. Are they not? From the scalpel to the cutting knife to the rope cutter, they're actually good instruments, aren't they? Knives are good things. But are they always used in good ways? No, of course they're not. The evil man, in fact, can see one of those instruments in his rage and seize an opportunity. Can he not? And the issue, of course, there is not the knife, but the man. Just like sin personified here by Paul, it looks at the law. This is Paul's point. Before we attack law, he personifies sin and says, Sin, like an evil man, looks at the law and says, Aha, I see an opportunity. And Paul continues to use the Mosaic law and the 10th commandment as an illustration. Look, he says, God has said, You shall not covet. And through that law expressed, sin sees and pounces. Paul says, Once law came like that command, then sin was aroused in me. This, of course, was the point that we read earlier last week. Remember verse 5. Look at it again. Paul had said there, While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by what? The law that we're working our members to bear fruit for death. Now, let's not miss the point of defense here, because Paul is indeed defending the law here. And how is he doing it? Well, in cases like we just considered, like a knife, the sin, too, is not in the instrument itself. The bad thing is not the instrument itself. It's how it's being used and who is using it. Remember, as we think back to that illustration... The knife was designed to be helpful. And more, along with the defense of the law, God's word is also teaching us here something in verse 8. This is very, very important. And we learn this. We could say it this way, as F.F. F. Bruce helped us so memorably, he said it this way. In this text, in Paul's argument in Romans, in chapter 6, 7, and 8, sin is the villain. Let's never lose that. It's so helpful. Sin is the villain, Don't lose sight of that. Sin is the villain, not the law. And like all villains, they use, they twist, they distort what is good for sin. For a villain, they seize opportunities. And for sin, the law is an opportunity. Consider with me the first recorded sin in Genesis 3. The first sin came by way of what? Through what? Law. The first commanded law by God in Scripture is recorded in Genesis 2.16. Listen, it says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That is law, garden law. And it's clear, yet just moments And verses later, we have this in Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, think about this, with law freshly given, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Do you see what's going on there? Satan's attack in the garden came by way of the commandment. Satan's attack came by way of the commandment. Commandment game, sin saw it, Satan saw it and pounced. There's my opportunity. Sin embodied in this account in the serpent seized the opportunity that law afforded. Sin there, and note this, in the garden, worked through a good thing. Did what God say to Adam and Eve, would anyone consider that a bad thing? No, more on that in a moment. Sin worked through a good thing for an evil end, such is Paul's point. In defending the law here, Paul makes clear the problem is not the law. The problem is sin. The problem is always sin. Sin takes the law and uses it to arouse, encourage, and produce all manner of sin. And this, of course, beloved, creates a tension within us attention in the believer, does it not? And we're really going to see this later in the chapter. This is the natural outflow of what law does. The the believer, on one hand, and look at verse 22 by way of preview, the believer delights in God's law. That's what regeneration creates in us. We delight in God's law. As the saints did of old, I think of Psalm 119, just to name one. Ken read for us Psalm 19. But along with that delight, the believer also finds, verse 21, evil close at hand. That's the tension. And this is precisely the point Paul is building to here. I only give you that preview so we can fill in the argument in the next few weeks ahead. This is the tension that law creates. And here it is, beloved, in a body that still carries around unredeemed flesh. You see that? That's the tension. We all live in it, believer. It's like a law war, and we're going to get into that in the weeks ahead. Now, before we get there, though, and before we leave this first point, there's one more clause that requires comment. Look at the end of verse 8. Paul says, For apart from the law, look at this, sin lies dead. Now, far from causing confusion at this point in the argument in Romans, this is the kind of verse I trust you look at, and you're beginning to say, okay, yes, I think I'm tracking and I'm seeing. I remember that the believer being dead to sin does not mean we do not sin. I remember that. And I remember that it means we're dead to sin's condemnation and power. That's what it means to be dead to sin. And I recall from verse 4 that we're dead to the law through the body of Christ. That's how we're dead to sin, through Christ. Thus, I trust we can say together, as we track with Paul, we see the pieces truly coming together. The power of sin lies dead to us when we are in Christ. And in Christ, remember, we're dead to the law and thus dead to sin's opportunity through the law. We're dead to that because of Christ. That, of course, does not mean we no longer sin or we're no longer tempted. That's not what it's saying. But here it is, it means in Christ, we are able to say no to the serpent. In Christ, we're able not to sin, said Augustine, because in Christ, the end of the law is embodied, Romans 10, verse 4. And as such, remember, Romans 5, we've undergone a transfer, remember, from Adam to Christ, and now in Christ, the power source and heart are radically different. In Christ, we desire not to rebel against the law. In Christ, we want to obey. And in Christ, here's the glory, Christian. Here's the glory. In Christ, we can. We can. Praise God. In Christ, in him, not under law, listen, sin lies dead. Because he embodies and fulfills the law and imputes that righteousness to us. Is that not a good engine? Now, we, following Jesus in Christ, we live out Christ, who is law's standard. He's the embodiment of the law. Far from shedding law, we're one with the one that embodied the law. Must make antinomian shudder at the thought. Thus, our relationship to law is now different. For us, the law and sin have changed. That is how Paul defends law here, through a thorough exposition of law and sin, whereby he reminds of the law's purpose, remember, knowledge of sin, and also by reminding us of who the true villain is, sin and not the law. That's one, law and sin, one defense. Next defense is this, the law and life. Look at verse 9, the law and life. Let's consider verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Paul says, I once was alive apart from the law. Let's just stop and look at that for a moment. That expression must, if you're really tracking to any level here, must stop you for a moment. I once was alive apart from the law. Paul continues to communicate here almost like an autobiography. That's kind of what he is using, the instrument he's using in verses 7 and 8. In a way, he is doing that, which especially will come through with where we're going in the weeks ahead. You're going to really see that. However, he is doing more here with these first person pronouns, I and me. So let's consider. First, remember the law was given first and foremost to who? The nation of Israel, right? They were the ones who received it. And as we've noted, it then became the law of the proselyte to Judaism. Then eventually the law of those, whoever those Gentiles would be as well, with faith in Yahweh. Well, here, through this eye, Paul is standing in solidarity with his brothers the same way. For the Jew first, then the Gentile, and for those of faith, they were in one sense, listen, alive apart from the law. Now, what does that mean? As always, we need to look at context. To understand what something means, we need to look at the context. Remember, with law came what? Knowledge of sin, Do you right? We see that? That does not mean, of course, that sin was not sin before the law. Sin is sin, always, every time. But listen, before the law, remember Romans 5... The law sin, before the law, sin was not counted or reckoned as it is under law. This we covered extensively in chapter 5. In fact, let me read you chapter 5, verse 13. Remember this. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. In other words, sin is sin. It was in the world. But, Paul says there, sin is not counted where there is no law. Very important we cover that sin is not counted or accounted before the law was given. Legal language here. Hence, after the coming of law, sin was counted. Sin was accounted, and there was a word for that we saw back in verse 14 of chapter 5. And what was it? Transgression. Transgression. Transgression, as we learned in Romans 5, is what brought the condemnation. And condemnation, as we've studied in Romans, is guilt under the law. That's what condemnation is. It's guilt under the law. That's the key, beloved. And that condemnation under the law and that transgression is what brings death. So simply, Westmount, Paul here considers his kinsmen before Sinai. Before the law was given then, and they stood not yet condemned under law. Doesn't mean they didn't sin, but they weren't condemned under law. Not yet, in that sense, they stood alive. The law hadn't condemned them yet. Sinners, but not yet condemned by law. And when the law was given to them, what did it do? It killed them. It killed them, right? By condemning them. Thus, the end of verse 9, when the commandment, when the law came, sin came alive and I died. And I pray that makes sense. When the law came... It made sin transgression, declaring us guilty, condemning us, and we died. In other words, before the law, I was alive and sin was dead because I did not know law. And hence, in that sense, didn't transgress it. However, when law came, it aroused sin, and sin came alive, and then I died. As Paul considers the experience of Israel, and by extension, all those under law here, He reflects now on what the law seemingly promised. Look at verse 10. Look at this insightful statement. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Paul is likely referring to a verse in the law, Leviticus 18, verse 5, and it says this, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules if a person does them. Listen carefully. He shall live by them. I am the Lord. Of course, what's missed there, he shall live by them, and continues to be for the Jew is this, the life promised in the law is life lived, relationship to Yahweh, not life saved. Listen, if a person does them, he shall live by them, I am the Lord. This is what it means to be my people and to serve me and to live as my people. That's the point of the law the Mosaic law. Mosaic law there was never intended or given as a means of salvation to Jew or Gentile. That's by way of review of what we learned in Exodus. In fact, to rely on law, and here it is, beloved, is to rely on sin's weapon. Do you see that? If you rely on law, you're relying on the weapon that sin uses. Look at verse 11, and this is what happens when you rely on law. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Now there's just so much here in this verse, so let's just take a moment and think it through together. So helpful. Beloved, through the law, through the law, sin kills us. That's what the text is saying. Sin kills us through the law, and look at the manner in which it kills us. It deceives us. Do you see that? sin kills us by deceiving us through the law. Now, that can sound very heavy, and you're just tempted to let go of all law when you hear that. But let's keep tracking. There's no greater weapon in deception through the law, or by sin, than through the law. And this is the way, friends, it's always been. This is not something new. Paul... In fact, I would submit to you is very directly referencing what went on in the garden in this text. Because it's just so powerful. So let's turn there for help. Genesis 3. And let's look at what Paul is saying here. Come to life. How indeed can we say and recognize through the commandment, sin deceives and kills? This is immensely practical for us. Right? Want to. Consider Eve's words, just to begin in Genesis three thirteen, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Do you see that there? Same idea. The serpent, remembering the serpent used what? The law. The serpent deceived me by way of the law, then we could say, and I ate. So how does sin deceive and kill through the law? That's the question. And Westmount. I would submit to you, we need to know this as we interact with law. So let's pull some principles out here. Number one, sin deceives through the law by focusing us on what is limited, not what is licensed. Let me say that again. This is very important. Sin deceives you through the law by making you focus on what you're limited to, not what you're licensed to. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You just want to focus on what you can't do. And this is exactly Satan's tactic. Remember what the serpent said to Eve. Look at three one. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And what did he just do? He perverted that law. And not only did he pervert it, he focused on the prohibition and he amplified it. I don't know. Of a child, and maybe they're out there. I don't know of a child that exists that doesn't do this. When parent says no and limits something, says, well, my parents said I can't do anything. Right? So what we do. I did it all the time. And such deception always clouds and hides. Listen, such deception always, every time, clouds and hides the license of God. Is that not true? Every time. Focusing on the limiting thing, blowing it up, and what are you blind to? All the trees in the garden freely eat. And we get fixated on one. That's one. So do you see? This is for all of us. This is how sin deceives and kills you through the law. Causing you to focus on what you're limited to, not what you're licensed to. Two, sin deceives through the law by convincing us that we're missing something. Now I know what you're thinking here, right? Because we're all thinking it. Law comes and we're missing out. I can't do this, I must do that, and I'm missing out. Recall the serpent's retort to Eve. This is the ultimate fear of missing out. Look at Genesis 3, verse 5. For God knows, said the serpent, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and here it is, so crafty, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, if I could add a subtext, and you don't want to miss out on that, do you? You don't want to miss out on being like God. So deceptive and so killing. This, beloved, is how sin deceives. It lies every time through the law by suggesting that in every law of God you're being cheated. Do not buy that lie, you are being protected. And note that double-edged deception here as we see in the garden. Eve, not only are you not God or nor can you be God, lie number one. Two, God is not preventing you and keeping you from something. He is protecting you. He's not taking you away from good things. He's protecting you from bad things. Oh, how we miss this with law. Law. Sin's deception misses the protection of law. In fact, look at chapter two, verse seventeen. How this was missed. (coughs) Eve, if you do this one thing with this one tree, you may have an allergic reaction to that fruit and break out and have an uncomfortable night's sleep. (laughs) No, and I say it that way, beloved. Listen, because we think that way, don't we? You will die. You will die. You will surely die. Emphatic in the Hebrew, you will die. Does God love Eve? Of course. Is he protecting Eve? Beloved, do not buy the lie that there's something you're being prevented from. Don't buy the lie that we're missing out on something. Believe the truth that God is protecting you every time under law. Brothers and sisters, do not buy it. You are never missing out on something when you obey. If I could put that in neon lights, I would. You are never, ever, ever missing out on something when you obey God. Three, sin deceives through the law by convincing us that we'll escape punishment. Oh, this is insidious, isn't it? We'll get away with it. We're going to get away with this one. Listen to the commandment and the serpent back to back. Chapter 2, verse 18, or 17, I'm sorry, you shall surely die. Chapter 3, verse 4, you will not surely die. Look at it again, beloved. Chapter 2, verse 17, end of the verse, God says, you shall surely die. Chapter 3, verse 4, end of that verse, what does Satan say? You will not surely die. Do you see that? God's law, clear, you will die. Sin says, you won't die. Who's right? Beloved, that deception continues to this very day in the sins you committed this week. Is that not true? All the sins we did this week, and we all did that, that deception ran roughshod, didn't it? I don't know about that, God. I won't die. And it will continue to be the deception until Christ's second coming. See it, the bold-faced deception of sin. It says whatever God says, it's just not true. Now I can go sin. God's law says your sins will find you out. Numbers 30 to 23. You know what sin says? My tracks are covered. I think I got it. My tracks are covered. God's law says there's a price to pay. Exodus to Deuteronomy. Blessings and curses. That's what God's law says. Sin says, Ah, I think I can pay that. That was Israel's issue, right? Thinking that under the law, they'd be okay. Do you remember the rich young man? Matthew nineteen twenty, so excited, bouncing up and down before Jesus, yes, Jesus, yes, Jesus, all these laws I have kept. I've lived law, now pay me. Remember the Pharisee in Luke eighteen eleven, excited to declare his law work, arms extended. God, I'm not like the lawbreakers. I fast twice a week, I give tithes to all that I get. I get tithes regularly, I honor the law, I do do do. Sin deceives through the commandment by tricking us into thinking we can escape punishment. Here it is, by our own sense of law-keeping. I know you've been there. This is pure deceit. The reality is our law-keeping, or whatever we think we're doing, like the Pharisee and the rich young man, is a version of this. We pull out the scale and we say, You know what, Lord? I think I've actually kept more law than I've actually broken. So let me in. This is what sin does, right? This is what sin does. Through the law. All of that is through the law. So let's be on guard here. And as we do, let us not look at sin's weapon, the law, with disdain. Paul senses that we might do that here, and maybe you're tempted to do that right now. And thus he closes this section with this. Look at verse 12, back to Romans. He senses, the living word does, what's going on, and he gives us this. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Church, I pray you see you walk away this morning and you recognize the law is not the problem. Let us please be reminded of that as we end. Look again. Verse 7. Is the law sin? No, the law is not sin. But verse 12, the law is holy the law is righteous, the law is good. The law was holy in Israel. It defined a life, set apart, a Yahweh-oriented life. The law was righteous, the standard for God's people. That was the law. And the law was good. It was not a villain. Sin remains. As it has from the garden, right into Christ's return, sin remains the villain. Israel, like all of God's people, need that holy, righteous, and good law for living life. They needed it in Israel, and church, we need it today. We still need the holy, righteous, and good law today for our living today. And Beloved, we have it. That standard of holiness, righteousness, and goodness came down. There's your administration change. God in flesh, Jesus Christ... Both God and law incarnate, he lived law perfectly. And yes, Christ is law's full demonstration and law's final defense. It's all in him. And friend, he gave that perfect law-fulfilling life. He gave it and laid it down for the lawbreaker. But not all lawbreakers. No, only for the lawbreakers who now, with now, have knowledge of sin. Is that you? Is that you? With a knowledge of sin now. Now do you see it? Jesus came for the lawbreakers that understand the deception of sin now and for the lawbreakers that repent from law rebellion and lawlessness. For the lawbreakers, listen, that turn from despising the law to desiring it. But you can't muster that up on your own. And if you're here today provoked with a knowledge of sin, seeing something for the first time, you can't do it, you need to cry out to God and beg him to change your heart, to stop despising law and rule, and especially his law and rule, and to embrace and desire it like we heard earlier this morning. It's the only way. Listen, Christ is the defense against the demands of the law. There is no other way. Outside of Christ, I love you to tell you, you won't be okay. You're not going to be okay. Outside of Christ, no one is okay. You must be in him and all in him. Christ turns the lawbreaker, and listen, Christ alone turns the lawbreaker into a law abider. Only Jesus can do that. And Christ's beloved righteousness is no longer measured by the law itself. No, the measure and standard of life, Christian, for you and me, is Jesus Christ. That's the standard of our life, the one we have union with. We're called to be holy, and only in Christ are we holy. There is no other way. There's no other standard, and there's no other law but Christ. The law of who he is, Galatians 6.2. Christ left us with his word. It's what you hold in your hands. That's what the living word and the living law left us with. It's right there in your hand. As such, you're holding holy words. And like all good defenses, let us rest this one with a testimony. I'll end with this, Psalm 119, 97. Listen to a testimony of one with faith in Yahweh. Oh, how I love your law. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. I trust that is your testimony this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, indeed your law is holy and righteous and good. Forgive us, Lord, when we look at it in any other way but that, as your holy word. Let us now take the word that we have heard and live in it for your glory, we pray. Amen.